Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And we're uh, Barbara and I are both really excited to have our guest today, Elliot Pattison, here with us. He's a big favorite of, of everybody here at the store. We've been following his work closely for many years. From this Since... book, let me just hold it up, my own personal copy of Skull Mantra. Right. The winner for Best Debut Novel and the start of a series that is set in mostly Tibet, um, maybe sort of harks back to China, and features police inspector Shan Tao Yun. But there are also some interesting Native American elements in here, Navajo, that creep into this. So it's a wonderful series. Um, and I don't think you've written one for quite a while, have you, Elliot? Well, we we decided that that uh, after ten, it was probably time to to put that to bed. I you know I would be open to doing another one, but we you know I haven't really pursued it very aggressively. It's a great you know we uh, still get a great response on that series. A lot of a lot of active interest. You know, a lot I've had several uh, interviews as a result of this book launch, and 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 like most of them, maybe all of them have have spent time talking about that series. As well. You can't, you just can't. I mean, I still remember going to Book Expo when they still had Book Expo, and your book was featured, and I picked up the advanced reading copy, not this beautiful finished book, which Ellie had signed for us, but um a paper copy that's put out in front of publication. And I just I just fell in love with it, and I sent you quite a few, if I remember, to sign. And then it won the Edgar, and I thought. Yes, I love that. For those of you who don't know, the Edgar is um, an award for the Mystery Writers of America named after Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe. And um, the Edgar for Best First Novel has launched many a terrific career. Right, Patrick? Yes. Yes, indeed. Right. So carry on with your spiel, which I interrupted, but I just, it was perfect. Oh, no, no not at all. My, I mean, everybody's heard my spiel. Um, uh, if you have questions for Elliot, go ahead and put them in the comments field, and I'll be happy to ask any of them. And also, I'll put a, a buy link. Um, we should be getting signed copies of the new book, Freedom's Ghost, in very shortly. And I must say, it's fascinating, uh, you know, Elliot, that you've written a book set in the colonial period, which is so fascinating and so underexplored, really, in crime fiction. Wouldn't you agree, Barbara? I think so. Actually, there's a great essay on Elliot's website, which I can pull up on my phone about why he is writing yeah. um, this series. And um, I could, and I, I could, I could read it. But you know what? You could just tell us, Elliot, why is it that you have decided to write a series? I also, I also just did a a post on uh, for Writer's Digest on the on historical fiction, historical novels, and and you know, it was sort of. Uh, the title, I think, was like the duty, the, the duty, the challenging duty of historical novelists getting you know, using the facts to get to the truth. And I think that that kind of says a lot there, um, because I think that our history books have let us down, especially around the founding of America. Uh, it, it's just an amazing time, one of the most amazing times of all history, I believe. Uh, and I think that that historical novels are a really, really good way to get people to connect you know, with our past much better than most history books these days and so uh you know i feel you know we had a responsibility there but i also have a great passion for this period which i've been you know i've been following all of my life when i was very young my my parents were both from the outside of philadelphia we would go into independence hall probably once a year and back then 
Liberty Bell was not guarded. And I remember I would go up and I would hug it. And I would feel like the warmth of the metal, and it, and it sort of like resonated with me, really, you know. And and uh, that was very moving as well. And then we would also go to Valley Forge, so it all kind of fell together. And then I was off on our, I grew up on a farm. We you know, off finding arrowheads, and so history was really, really much, very much uh, a passion of mine from a very early age. So this wonderful book is our November Historical Fiction Book of the Month, which is why Elliot is signing copies that are coming to us. And, you know, it's it's the great American experiment, which it really is. We talked about that with Andrew Cleveland last night, um, is um, wobbling at the moment. And certainly dangerous forces afoot. And I like what Elliot has to say here. We are taught to think of the revolution, American Revolution, in terms of a compressed military timeline when in fact the real revolution was a gradual process of transformation over decades as scores of thousands of very diverse colonists reinvented themselves as American. My novels bear witness to the pain and exhilaration of this process. Um, if you've ever been to Williamsburg, for example, you know, that's one place that you see um, a movement from being colonists and being uh, governed from Britain if you go to Boston and Marblehead, where this book um, is set, called Freedom's Ghost. Elliot, can you hold up a copy since, you know, our copies are with you currently? There it is. Right. Um, and I, when I wrote about it, I said it's a rousing adventure set in Marblehead in Boston and reminds us why we fought for a break of monarchy and how messy rebellion and government can be. It's the latest on a journey through the revolution that is compared to Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander novels, taking which, you know, I think are marvelous. And he was able oh, yeah. to, what did he write, Elliot? 2020, wasn't it? 21s? Or then 20, 21, 22, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, and also, I think story. it's an important story in a month when we celebrate Thanksgiving. And, you know, part of our even even if we're celebrating Thanksgiving from a particular perspective, which is being challenged by all kinds of indigenous authors and voices right now. Um, but it's still, it's still important to remember how the world was in so much transition. And you point that out, Elliot, you know, that the, you know, the Scottish Highlands culture had been destroyed uh, after Culloden in 1745, uh, that the woodland nations in America were constantly being assailed, especially the Eastern ones, like the, you know, the Seneca, the Iroquois and so forth. The British had just defeated France in Quebec, where I just was actually on the Plains of Abraham. I always go and visit. Um, when was that, 1760 something? Uh, Quebec was 1760, I think, yeah. Right. Anyway, um, the British finally took over from the French, although Quebec has remained defiantly French <laughs> until this day. Um, so there were all these forces at work where old orders were being overturned and the colonists were growing in economic power, growing in um, you know, their desire to have a voice in their own in their own government. So why don't you tell us about your hero and what happens well in so the, this theme that you've, that you've emphasized, thank you for that, of, of um, Americans finding their identity and breaking away from, from uh, the British is, it runs throughout this entire series. And this is the seventh book in the series, the first, the series being called the Bone Rattler series, the first name of the first book. Uh, and, you know, it is, 
it, it, it highlights a lot of, as many themes as in all my books and, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and several subplots that tie together, of course, at the end. Uh, but my protagonist is a Scottish Highlander studying who had been studying to be a doctor in Edinburgh, the premier medical school in the world, uh, and with, had been arrested suddenly because he, he was found to have been giving some aid to a very elderly great uncle who had been a sort of a, a, a last surviving uh, rebel, a Jacobite rebel. Uh, this was long after the war, uh, and Duncan was you know, abruptly imprisoned and then transported for indenture servitude to America, which happened to thousands of Scots after the, the last Jacobite uh, uprising. Uh, and so he was sort of at the tail end of that movement. But he, here he is thinking he was going to be a doctor in Scotland, and suddenly he's on a ship, basically a prisoner going to the New World. And doesn't know what, what what's going to happen. He winds up being indentured to an aristocratic family, but then sent abruptly to their estate on the wilderness on the frontier. Uh, and then his adventures start. He begins to encounter murders and his medical background helps him uh, understand the murders and bring justice. And he earns the uh, the name, the you know, the nickname, sort of uh, the tribal nickname of Death Speaker, because he's able to speak for the dead and find find them reconciliation, and it's much more for the tribes. Not really so much about what we would call justice as about reconciliation, you know, getting you know, getting peace, and of course that almost always means finding what we would call justice, or at least identifying the killers, etc. And then he has, you know, all of my characters all the lead characters have great contradictions built into them and great you know great conflicts that they face um he he, he is um by now he's engaged to sarah ramsey who's the daughter of this this powerful aristocrat uh who owns the estate uh that they live on and and uh sarah is this very resourceful you know beautiful engaging very smart uh, daughter of this of this iconic uh, uh aristocrat in england with the uh, unusual twist that she was raised by the Mohawk tribe after being captured as a young girl and sort of disowned by her father. And then she was released as a result of the treaties that were reached after the French and Indian War. And this, based on the Charlotte true stories, there are a lot of people who were captured and, and released after that by treaty. And they didn't actually, most of them actually didn't want to go back. Uh, they wanted to stay with the tribes. That, that's a separate, you know, separate set of stories there. Um, and then there's uh, Conowago, the third, the third main character. Conowago is a very old uh, native from the Nipmuc tribe, the Massachusetts tribe that that uh, is pretty much gone. Uh, he was identified by the Jesuits back in you know in the early, well, late in the last century, meaning the late 1600s, as as what we would call a high potential student, and and was uh, taken from his tribe to go to Europe and have an education by the Jesuits. And then he, and then 10, 12 years later, he comes back and his tribe and his family have completely disappeared. And so he's got this tragic background. He keeps trying to find his people for decades and he can't find them. And he and he and uh, Duncan settled into a sort of relationship that's sort of an ad hoc father-son type relationship. And, and uh, you might say in terms of, a, from the mystery crime perspective, he's, he's uh, Duncan's Dr. Watson. You know, so this wise old uh, native, you know, counseling Duncan about finding the truth. Uh, and, you know, he sort of acts as, as uh, Duncan's conscience a lot of times. 
actually, there's a parallel, um, not only Holmes and Watson, but William Kant Kruger, who writes a wonderful um, award-winning series. He has a Meiji character called Henry Malou, who is now 100 years old or something, but Henry's never going to die. He's going to just go on. But Henry is a an advisor and a counsel. This is in upper Minnesota um, to um, the main character in um and Kent series. And um I I I love the way that um he too, he's not really he's not really a Watson. He's much more an advisor than you know than a, a co-investigator. Yep. So it was just that he 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 comes up with observations sometimes that help Duncan solve solve the mysteries, you know, and, you know from his very different perspective. And and right and I, I've, the tribes do figure pretty heavily in the in the series, not so much in this installment, but in some of the prior books. His main his main challenge and the main plots are about solving murders within the, within the native tribes and the Iroquois primarily. So we're in 1770 here, but as you point out, that the 18th century was a, a century of enormous transition. So 1700 was remarkably different from. 1800 by the time we got through it um you know other authors have written about some of the financial um institutions and misadventures that that happened um during the time commerce was changing travel was changing you know there was so much going on um and it's almost it's almost impossible to keep stability in a time like that i think we're going through something very similar in the digital age you know that many things are breaking down and it's leading to a lot of upset, a lot of disorder, the consequences. God only knows what AI is going to wind up doing. Um, but, you know, it's normal that there are periods of stability that are then, you know, racked by enormous change, economic, social, whatever. And while you're living through it, it's really difficult. So, so the, these are, you could say my, my books are about the people living through that. It, it really... Um, you know, the, the characters almost all, you know, might be characterized as sort of outcasts, exiles, uh, you know, refugees. Um, but, but really everybody in the colonies is trying, is in an identity crisis. And, and I talk a lot about that and I, in my, you know, commentary about the books and my posts and all. Um, and they, the, uh, you know, they were all sort of on their own paths of self-discovery that, that begin to converge. Okay. You know, Paul Revere saying the British are coming, you know, 30, 40 years before that, people would have said the British are coming. They would have said like the soldiers are coming. You know, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have like this arm's length perspective of the British. They were sort of British themselves. And, you know, but, but by 1770, that was really becoming instilled, especially in Boston. Boston was, was, you know, had been such a center of culture. Now, 1770, it's not. It's taking a second, it's second or third seat to Philadelphia and New York. Uh, still a thriving city, but not nearly as thriving as it had been 30, 40 years before this. Uh, the they have been, however, they've been the most vocal, the most resistant uh, against the British measures like the stamp tax and and uh, and other measures, Townsend Acts, other measures restricting trade. And they've been punished severely. And now not only were there special taxes on Boston that actually made Boston the most taxed jurisdiction in all of the British Empire, but also 4,000 troops descended on Boston. Uh, and so we have a city of 16,000 people 
read 16,000 residents with 4,000 soldiers. Imagine that. Just imagine that. And they're they're trying, you know, trying. Uh, the leaders are trying to maintain peace. The the average citizens uh, are furious. There's ac- epidemics brought by the soldiers. There there are you know, a number of conflicts. But on the other hand, there's widespread desertion by the British troops. What you know that's sort of an interesting aspect. And then there are also several, quite a few, surprising number of marriages between colonial women and and soldiers during the occupation. And so you know all of those sort of human aspects. So you know there's a lot of conflict, a lot of difficult self-discovery going on. And of course, that all that overlays with, you know, Duncan trying to solve murders. I mean, he is he is thrust into, again, as the book opens up, he's thrust into uh, solving a really gruesome murder of a British officer, desperately wants to not be able to blame the Patriots because he knows that'll set the army off. Uh, but it's yeah, it's going to be very difficult, and then you know the murders pile up, and he he uh, before too long uh, realizes that whatever the outcome, either he's going to he's going to really upset the army into possibly violent action, or he's going to really upset the patriots into violent action, and so he's got to find a way to reconcile all that while also protecting his fiance Sarah, who has. Uh, he discovers has brought in eight runaway slaves from Barbados on top of everything else. And so, you know, I have the themes of, of slavery and, and, and of course, the sense of liberty and, and the secret agents, which is based on, on actual facts, secret agents working against the patriots. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, there's the social currents of of. Uh, scientific discovery and a lot it's a huge explosion of what we would call scientific discovery there is an explosion in the, in the recent decades the mid, mid mid 18th century of literacy i mean people don't what the fact that people don't understand often don't understand is that americans by then were more literate than people that lived in england they read a lot more books. They had better schools than the people in England. Overall, the standard of living in America was was considered the best in the Western Hemisphere, uh, and so they you know they sort of have been finding a good life based on a lot of a lot of you know the American resources and a lot of hard work, et cetera. But there's, there's all these themes coming you know coming together, which is a lot of you know a lot of fun for a novelist. It's a matter of juggling them in some coherent way. Oh, it certainly was a daily drama, you know. Um, history, you know, when you look back, you think that it was just a series of events. And, you know, you kind of forget that every day was some kind of a challenge. And when you're writing history about um, a time like this, you know, or an historical novelist, almost any historical novelist, you have to you have to bring in real people as well as fictional people. So Duncan actually works for John Hancock, um, when you know most of us know for his famous signature. Um, ben Franklin is you know wandering about all kinds of um, real people. So you have to be faithful to the real about the real people, don't you? While you're crafting your fictional people around. Proud of the post I just did for Writer's Digest, and folks who are interested in that point ought to, ought to take a look at that on the, the beauty of the historical novelist. Because yes, absolutely, and I do. I went into this whole process with a, with a with a foundation of of historical knowledge, but I've done a huge amount since then. And one of the advantages of writing books set on on um, 
Mexico and basically on the North American continent is I've been able to visit every single location that I talk about, mm-hmm. unlike all locations in Tibet that I talked about. <laughs> uh, and and um, and and read biographies. I never I never you know focus on an authentic character from history without doing a lot of biographical research. Uh, so I read multiple biographies of Franklin. There's many good ones out there. There's a couple of good ones on Hancock. You know, there's a there's a really good book. Also, you mentioned Marblehead, John Glover, and the Marbleheaders. You know, who became very famous in the war, uh, were beginning to sort of flex their muscles at this time. And there, that's a really really interesting set of people. And there's a great book called The Indispensables uh, mm-hmm. by Pat. Donald about uh, just about them, and I spent a lot of time reading that and rereading that book. It was a really good source. Well, I I do think, you know, one of the other things you have to do when you're a novelist is that while history can unfold solely despite the daily drama, uh, you have to keep the pace going, and yeah. um, and so you know sometimes you have to speed up the action, and you do end up this book with an amazing chase scene. Uh, which you must have had a really good time writing. It's a very dramatic denouement for this particular story. Um, I really enjoyed reading that. So do you have any actual experience, you know, out on the river, uh, river travel? <laughs> Not too much. My editor, you know, and I were talking about that. He actually helped out because he he did have a lot of experience on the huh. river. But uh, it's all very, you know, historically based in terms of the uh, at that point, the escaped slaves are being sought by slave catchers, and the and the secret agents are still trying to go after Duncan, and you know all of those are themes that are that are authentic. Uh, and then you know his his um, you know his white knights, as it were, uh, are all Mohawks, and so you know I bring the tribes back in, you know, at the end. Uh, and you know, and that's it. Although this book doesn't go too much into the tribes, like I said, the other ones, most of the other ones do. And there's, there's, uh, you know, a lot of 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 uh, you have know, a lot of sympathy for the Woodland tribes, and I and I believe that their role at this era, this era, is pretty underestimated. I think they they did have a, a meaningful influence on society. And they had to make some tough choices too. I mean, you know, they were looking at extermination, um, and you know, there were a lot of sneaky things. I mean, I think it's true. Well, you you probably know this better than I do, but I certainly have read that there was a certain amount of germ warfare, even though people didn't really know a whole lot about biological warfare. They did know about smallpox, and um, sometimes, um, as I understand it, that. Um, small blankets, for example, that have been, you know, given to small, but this may be apocryphal, so you can set me straight if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I, I have read that, you know, sometimes um, blankets and so forth that had been given to smallpox patients were then given to some of the native tribes, and they were basically defenseless against all the European diseases. In the same way, Elliot, I've spent, I've done, been to Peru three different times, and really, fascinated with the you know the Incan culture and and other tribes in South America and they were they were just decimated by the Spanish I mean it wasn't really that military prowess that allowed Pizarro and whatever to conquer them it was much more the effect of um and I think it was measles as much as anything you know yeah I mean this goes beyond the scope of my books but they I read a lot about a lot of this history and they the there's a lot of historians that try to estimate and try to make educated guesses about what happened in 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 the 
uh, with the tribes with the, with the onslaught of Europeans. And most, you know, there seems to be a fair amount of agreement now that probably 90% of the, of the natives of the Americas, and it includes, it's actually more in Latin America, South America, and Mexico than in North America. There were a much bigger population in those areas. 90% of them died before Maine settlement by Europeans started on the East Coast because of a disease. Right. You know, the Spanish already done their thing in, in Mexico and, and, and Latin America. And the and people don't reckon don't focus on this, but European fishermen were coming to the to the New England coast, especially uh, in the 1500s. And they're the ones that brought the diseases that wiped out most of the tribes. I mean, you know, there are, you know, the natives that helped the pilgrims. There's tragic stories about them because a number of them, a couple, a couple of them had gone to, you know, Squanto, the famous Squanto, had gone to Europe and come back and his people were completely gone. They had all died of disease. Uh, and so this coastal tribes have been hit really hard by disease. And, that, and, then, and then going back to my series, you know, all of my native, native characters are certainly they're tragic but they all have their sort of own personal integrity and that's what they're left with that they they still have to be sort of true to their own spirituality they have to, they have their own integrity and they 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 most of them haven't given up on that you know they stay you know honorable uh and sort of live for the you know the uh the spirit of their their lost tribe and and there's a lot of you know there's, there's in in implicit tragedy and all of that but there's also you know a certain nobility you know that i play to in the, in the books that i, that I bring oh, you out do. and you did that that was a, a a theme very much true in in your tibetan series about the native nobility of you know tibet and the monks and so forth so those two series and my answer is that i don't really i've never considered that the, there is that much difference between the two series you know because they're they're about people that have been battered by the world battered by their governments and society that whether it's highland scots or the iroquois the other tribes and that were the tibetans or the uyghurs the uyghurs are in, in some of the books uh these are people who have been totally battered and they have massive reasons to be cynical and desolate and despairing uh but they, you know, they stick to it and they keep their nobility and, and, you know, in a way, you know, that's, a, that, you know, that is a fundamental theme of the Sean books. Uh, you know, because Sean doesn't know, knows he can't beat the government, but he has to find a way that keeps his, his self-respect and integrity and, and the integrity for the Tibetans that he's helping. Uh, and so Duncan, the same way, he knows he's, you know, the British government has destroyed his people. You know, after the after Culloden, <clears throat> the government went in, the army went in and, and just decimated. It was just like, in a way, it was worse than what happened to the Indians. You know, by at least by seventeen seventy, you know, they had not suffered that kind of of massive destruction that the like the the army inflicted on Highlanders. Uh, and 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 he you know he has to you know stay true to, to the highland spirit the highland tradition and of course there are highland survivors and there's more more of that highland spirit and culture in america by then than there's left in scotland uh Absolutely. And, well it's also in canada you know i mean you know we're the outlander bookstore so i'm sure this you know with diana who writes you know movingly about what has happened um if you just sort of move past the time travel, the rest of it is very, very solid history. Um, and, you know, 
many of them chose to go to the Carolinas. I used to live in that part of the country and you could still see that, you know, the reason that there were, you know, folk songs, the reason there was, um, you know, um, whiskey making, the reason there were quilting and all, many of the Appalachian, um, you know, cultural themes and whatever that we think about in their skills were really brought to them from the Highland, but there were also many of them that settled in Canada. So, right. you know, um, they were forced into a, um, a whole, they, they were forced into a new world, but they kept much of their old culture with them, which would not have survived. And, you know, there was a religious war up to that too, because, um, you know, the Jacobins, I mean, the, the, the Stuart Kings were Catholic and that was one of the major problems was that the British had determined then to be resolutely Protestant and the Stuarts were still Catholic. And that, you know, if you want to look at the great man of history, I could go back and talk to you about how terrible it was that James the first oldest son, Henry, died and we got Charles the first, who was, you know, possibly a decent man and whatever, but he was the wrong guy. And often this is true. You know, Louis the Sixteenth was the wrong guy for the momentous events that happened in France. Nicholas II was the wrong guy, you know, in Russia. And it's, you know, history can often be made, you know, by by the right guy at the right moment. And the right guy, a lot of it, you point out, were people like Hancock and people like Franklin. And, you know, you can't discount Samuel Adams, who was a radical. You know, Boston was, I mean, it, it takes people like that to keep stirring the pot. You know, yep. um, it, it, not just he, he certainly figures in my book and and yeah. and uh, Sam Adams and John Adams and John Hancock and they all, you know, Sam Adams was sort of this defiant guy throughout, but John Hancock uh, and to some extent John Adams uh, evolved a lot. Uh, Hancock started out, and I was very very true to his his actual story. Started out during this period trying to appease the government trying to impress the aristocrats he was the wealthiest man in, in massachusetts uh and he was very he was well known for his ostentatious show of wealth but he also was uh, and close to the governor and and try to be you know impress the army all the time but gee he was also a leader of the sons of liberty and you know that was a that was a big conflict and duncan actually kind of lays into him a couple of times in the book uh, over that conflict and how he has to come, you know, has to figure out who he is. Uh, and eventually he, he uh, you know, became a very ardent patriot and played a very important role in the revolution. Hancock well, is interesting to me because he had so much to lose. Samuel Adams didn't really, but, you know, Franklin and Hancock, some of it, Washington, um, you know, these were, these were people of real substance. These were people who had money. These were people who, you know, were really risking not just their lives, but but their, you know, everything they'd acquired for their descendants, the whole bit. Um, and I've always thought, you know, I, I remember visiting Annapolis, and this is the scene where Washington, if I remember this right, um, I think he handed over his sword there, but also, you know, Washington, we were so lucky in Washington because he could have just been king. But, you know, he he really understood transfer of power. And, you know, the fact that he served his term and then he went home, you know, Harry Truman said sort of the same thing. I remember reading because he was not necessarily much admired at the time that he was president or afterward, although looking back, 
he did some very courageous things. But somebody, I still remember reading this, somebody asked him, what did he do? What he First thing he did when he went home to Missouri, what did he do? And his answer was he carried the suitcases up to the attic. You know, yeah. I mean, he'd done right. his thing. And now, you know, he, it, and I mean, you contrast that with Trump. It's almost impossible to conceive, you know, uh, that we have come so far that we can't even achieve a peaceful transfer of power. And you look at, you know, you're a lawyer. I've read the law. Um, it's unbelievable. The legal, you know, the, the lawyers who espoused all these really completely bizarre and fictitious for, and, and for what reason? And now they're recanting, you know, many of them. And, you know, I have to, I have to, what, what caught them? What was it that made them abandon all sense and legal training, you know, and espouse this crazy theory that it, I just don't, I find it almost impossible. Well, you know, they, they, the laws have become a real quagmire in America. You know, I, I'm actually studying, um, the founding fathers and the Federalist Papers right now, and I take online courses, you know, most evenings, and and uh, you know they make the point that the you know the founding fathers worried that the, that there would be a proliferation of laws and that that would just complicate everything because it would allow everybody to make all kinds of arguments and you know when you project that out you know two hundred plus years and you can see what you know what's happened uh, yeah but going back to the book I mean all this stuff. None of that's happened yet. Not even you know, America, U.S. hasn't been formed yet, uh, and and uh, you know, it, it's a it's a real, as I say in the in the uh, the author's note at the end, you know, the foundation of America is sort of a miracle wrapped in mystery, you know, because there there is no precedent for it. There was no there was no uh, you know there was no institution that they could follow. They studied of course classics, a lot of other philosophers, but nobody had ever put this stuff into action that they were trying to implement. Uh, and, you know, there was any number of reasons why it would fail, you know, but, but you know, you know, they got through it. They did. Uh, you know, I wish that people were forced to read the Federalist Papers, and particularly Federalist Paper number 10, which is the most important, in my view, of all the Federalist Papers, because in it, Madison wrote that um, the, the, the system that they built would not be able to survive um, a tyranny of minorities. You know, right. that it requires a majority. And once you get to a series of tyrannies, which is what we're seeing right now, you know, um, a tyranny of minorities um, is almost impossible for the center to hold. So I think that the next couple of years are really gonna be almost make or break, you know, in terms of whether this great American experiment will actually survive. Are you planning to write this series? You said this is book number seven. What year did you start with Bone Rattler? When, what were we in? It was, well, in the early ones, I was alternating the Sean books and these books. It was probably the, the, what year historically and the historic yeah. timeline. No, what year historically? Sorry, not, not in terms of your writing. It was, uh, it was French and Indian War. So 1760s, uh, essentially. I think it was 1759 that I started. Okay, uh, so you've moved ahead 11 years. You know, are you planning to write this through the actual revolution? Yeah, I think we, I, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of interesting events that went on every year leading up to the revolution, and so there, you know, you know, there's a lot, there's a number of things going on in in, this, in 71, 72, then the then the Tea Party in 73, uh, and all of this intrigue. 
in London with Ben Franklin, and he's up to his eyeballs in intrigue in both in my books, but also in real life. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's so much material. There's so much material. I mean, I, you know, I take each, each one of these um, books, I try to develop a particular theme, you know, like the last book, The King's Beast, was heavy on science because it, it, it featured um, er, you know, sort of early paleontology uh, with, with Ben Franklin asking for bones of, of mysterious beasts to be brought to him from Kentucky to London and Duncan winds up doing that. But also there's the, uh, the transit of Venus, which is a very, very interesting aspect that, that people, most people don't know about where, um, you know, it was a massive scientific quest to, to measure the distance uh, use the transit of Venus on the sun to measure the distance to the sun. And, you know, it gets to be a complicated astronomical calculation, but it's possible. And the king was trying to do that. And he, he devoted, he built a whole laboratory, a whole observatory just for that purpose. But, but um, the amateur astronomers in Philadelphia were the ones that were successful. And he was at first very furious about that, but finally had to acknowledge that, that they had it right. Uh, and beat all the European scientists, you know, and so there's a lot of really fun, fun stuff. And of course, all the, all the aspects with Ben Franklin and electricity and his lightning rods, there's actually a number of stories just, you know, that could be told around, around all of that, you know, he became very controversial um, around his lightning rods and had a lot of arguments actually with, with the, with the king and others over the proper placement of lightning rods, which is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, so there's, there's any number of, of, there's so much material, any number of aspects that can be, you know, developed authentically and, you know, going back. So I love being really authentic and I will, when I start a book, I, one of these books, I take the year and I study that year as much as possible. And I get, I get one of my sources that I really love and I have a sample here, uh, is old newspapers from the period which are still available. I mean, you have to look for them, but they're still out there. Actually, it's easier to find a newspaper from 1770 or 1780 than it is to find one from 1850 because these papers from the 18th century were printed on rag paper, meaning fiber, cotton fiber. Uh, and the ones in, in the, starting in the mid 19th century were on newspapers that are very acidic and they all got brittle and, sh and just sort of shatter break when you touch them. And so you know, if they haven't been preserved properly, you know, you, you can't really use a paper from 1850, you know, but you can from 1750. And so I love reading this, those, those papers, both from, from London, there's more from England available in that period than America, but um, they're very, very informative in terms of catching the spirit of the, of the times and sort of the pulse of daily life and, you know, the issues that were, that were, you know, the common talk on the streets, you know, of, of the colonial towns and, and London. So that, you know, all of that is really, really helpful. And there's, there's, um, again, so much material in, in every one of these years, uh, you know, that, that, that lend, lend itself to fiction. Well, you certainly won't run out of material. I don't know that, you know, you'll, make it all the way to 1782, but you could probably make it to 1776. So Ellie, what brought you, what brought you to writing novels? I mean, what was your previous, you know, don't I remember you're a lawyer? Yeah. Yeah. So I was very lucky. I have been writing like ever since high school, a long, long time ago, but I would write little essays and book reviews and, and student newspaper sort of things. And then I would 
And then um, in law school, I started writing book reviews for you know newspapers, the Boston Globe, et cetera. And and um, and then when I became a lawyer, I I not long after starting practice, probably just the second, yeah, like a second or third year lawyer, I started writing, decided to write legal books, but they were not that you know, after the fourth one, I wasn't that excited about it. And so I had always aspired, you know, it was like a long shot to me, um, a distant dream to write, a, to write fiction. And by then I had taken a job that took me around the world. I traveled it heavily. I, stopped counting after I'd logged a million air miles. Uh, and that was like by the late 1990s. And I spent a lot of time in China and Tibet and, and it's seeing the persecution of Tibet's firsthand, Tibetans firsthand. And it really deeply bothered me uh, because I knew how valuable the Tibetan culture was and I knew how wonderful the Chinese people were overall. And to see what the tyranny, you know, the tyranny of Beijing was doing was you know really eating away at me. And so I wanted to, I wanted to write a novel. I I thought mystery would be my vehicle, and then I realized that hey, I could I might be able to to bring in Tibet and China, you know, into a mystery, and that's what gave rise to the to the Skull Mantra series. Well, being a lawyer certainly taught you research skills and discipline in writing. And if you're a lawyer, you're not allowed to have writer's block if you're you know, if you're writing up. Um, a trial or whatever it was. So were you doing commercial laws? that why you were traveling so much? Investment, international investment work. Oh, you know, okay. Right. And so, so you know, you you live now in a rural area. So presumably you've retired largely from practicing law and you're writing and that's, you know, so you're getting you're getting to do the thing that you love. But yeah. practicing law gave you the foundation for being able to do it, right? Yeah, that's right. I still consult a bit for for old clients on special, you know, special problems, but uh, mostly mostly writing and enjoying, you know, retired life. Yeah, well, we've got it's hardly retired life when you're producing books as rapidly as you do. I have one more question while Patrick comes back to join us. Why why did you call it Bone Rattler? I mean, that's the title of the first book, but why well, is it called Bone Rattler? Mysterious title, but it's it's based on on. Uh, the Iroquois shaman, you know, you know, the, who, who was, uh, Sarah Ramsey's the, the, you know, the, the female protagonist here, her, her Iroquois father was a shaman or like a holy man. And, and he was dearly feared, deeply feared, but also deeply loved by the Iroquois people and by Sarah. And, uh, one of the things that he did was, you know, he had, he had like necklaces of bones that he would shake when he was like invoking the spirits uh and that in the, in the first book in the bone rattler book um you know that becomes kind of an important feature when and his, his role and you know his his uh um you know his sort of lifeline and how it affects the plot you know that all ties into into what happens with sarah and duncan so you know it was a, it's sort of that that native american you know angle that i really wanted to deeply emphasize but then it also uh place to Duncan as a doctor and you know trying to deal with dead bones as it were and so you know he's a death speaker but he's kind of a bone rapper himself and that in that sense uh, so you know it's it's, it's worked pretty well as a title it has worked it's worked extremely well but I thought people new to it might want to know that the good news is this is book seven you can you can read the first six um or you can read this as a standalone and go buy it and the great thing about historical fiction is you don't have to age people in real time because, you know, 
real time has already passed. But at the same time, if you're doing what you're doing, which is marching your way forward, um, then each of the books is taking us one step closer to 1776, right? And then one of the books can be picked up on its own. You don't have to read them in sequence or anything. Now, I want also like to give a shout out to Elliot, who has very kindly over time um, donated some books to us to give away to people so we can interest you in reading the series. And I think we have a new supply at the store, and I tend to give them away at other author events, you know, so that it kind of spreads the word. But we might, we might this time, we might pick one. And for all the people who buy the new book, Freedom's Ghost, we might do a little raffle inside our store so you know it's not corrupt but you don't get to participate and we can award one person a complimentary book so patrick come and join us if you have questions or any questions from the audience this is the moment well yes and i also have to give a shout out to uh julia drake mm -hmm. uh, you know elliot's and uh and our other friend boston terrence ace publicist um who's on the the comments feed uh, she's really great. Thank you, Julia. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, question, let's see, from Linda. Did you investigate Hancock's participation in the Boston Tea Party? Supposedly, he was smuggling tea and lost customers when East India lowered their prices. Legal yeah. tea was cheaper than smuggled tea. Fascinating. Yeah. So I haven't, so this is only 1770 and the Tea Party is 1773, but, but John Hancock, Almost every merchant at the time, especially in New York and Boston, uh, was smuggling in some some fashion. And so there were there every shipload that came in with foreign cargo, they would declare only half of the goods, or there you know there would be it was like a standard practice. And so yes, Hancock did engage in smuggling, and Hancock did have an economic interest uh, in all these things that were going on with the with the government taxation, et cetera. Uh, that's you know that's all part. It's a good good question because it, it highlights how you know there are all these conflicts, and he had to he had to decide. I mean, eventually he had to choose you know the cause of liberty over his own you know pocketbook. Uh, but in these early years, he was still very much concerned with his pocketbook. And I had a question about you know weeding through when you're dealing with um, you know this history. There's so much mythology that's built up uh, over these events, you know, and you think about people that were, you know, brought up on the leather stocking books of Fenimore Cooper. And uh, are there any current sort of historians um, that you really like who are, who are publishing new kind of reassessments of the period? I know Nathaniel Philbrick has done some popular ones. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's done some good ones. And they, I, I tend to, uh, focus on the books that dissect uh, specific people or 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 events or or locations like like uh, Patrick O'Donnell's indispensable. So he and O'Donnell is really good at doing that. He did a, he's done other books like The Immortals based on the on the Maryland uh, Revolutionary War Fighters. You know, you know I, the story, the history books, you know, tells tell history sort of in a PowerPoint style these days. And it's sort of, it's macro and history happened at a micro level. And so I like those historians that go after the micro level and that's kind of, and, and you know, my books do that to some extent. I do believe, as I said, that historical fiction is a really, really good way to, to learn about the history. 
you know, you know, once you find a you know a writer who is who is truly authentic, and I and I go to great pains to be sure I'm you know authentic. You have to let you have to be true to the facts. You can't let the facts impinge on the fiction, but you also can't let the fiction impinge too far on the facts. And you have to have characters that are interesting enough, you know, to carry a story. You can't you can't just have stereotypes or you know cartoonish figures that Hopefully. are in your story. That and reflect. you have to have pace. And I've I've always admired the pace of Eliot's books. I mean, you know, it sounds like, and it is a lot of history, but at the same time, the action is just moving along. They're really thrillers and most respects i'm telling you the chase scene at the end of freedoms is remarkable i loved it I mean, it was a really great finish you know you've sort of got your heart in your mouth you think it just can't work and then there it is it was it was well done well thanks for that what about the, the challenge of, of writing dialogue in historical period how do you how do you kind of get that as 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 accurate as you possibly can yeah, it's a challenge, you know, and and because you, you want to make it accurate, but also if you get, if you totally followed the forms of speech used in certain periods, it would be almost incomprehensible, right? And 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 so there's a compromise there, and and uh, I've compromised a bit, but I do my best to be as authentic as possible. And there's there's um, so my sources of newspapers. Okay, th those are really good because they show how people were saying things and there what there were constructions that were used in in speech that are that we don't use today. And so, you know, I, I use that to some extent. You don't want to overwhelm the reader with something that's really alien, but but that does show up. There are some interesting glossaries, you know, from the 18th century. There's there's uh, um a great book that I really enjoy and, and use it as a resource is called Sea of Words. And it was a, it's really like a, a dictionary. I recommend it. It's like a dictionary for people that read the Patrick O'Brien novels, uh -huh. but also is, you know, a really, really good source on, on these sort of things. So it has, it's a dictionary, but it also has in the beginning several chapters just about maritime life and you know early medicine and you know economy and things like that and, there, and a lot of that and then and also speech uh so it's at that there are some sources like that there's a number of sources of that nature uh around the highland scots uh as well in fact i think probably I, letters, I, letters too right i would imagine yeah and you have the letters i mean there are a lot of, of the of the uh, more prominent people from from the from that era, you have a lot of their letters. John Adams, you know, had a, you know, especially had a lot of letters, very prolific. And you have to be careful because words can change their meaning. Yeah. Um, you know, so you also have to be careful that you're you're. I mean, the words queer and gay, for example, meant entirely different things when I was a child than they than they currently mean. You know, since we've been talking about Patrick O'Brien, Elliot, I'm going to send you a book because there's an author that I absolutely love called Galernter, J.H. Galernter. And I came to him with his second book called Captain Gray's Gambit. But he has now written three books and they're very much, it's Napoleonic or slightly before Napoleonic. And they're very much like Patrick O'Brien. He's, he's an agent of the British crown and there's lots of great sea stuff in it. But I think you would really like it, Patrick. We probably have the first one's called Hold Fast. Um, yeah. Can you make a note to just charge it to me and send Elliot a copy of Hold Fast? Yeah. Um, 
I think Captain Gray's Gambit, I, I like it slightly better, but I think you would absolutely love these books. Um, you have to read something that's not research every once in a while. I will, yeah, right. But Patrick O'Brien's novels are, are, they're not just research. I mean, I, and I, I have all of them on audio. And so wow. if I'm on car trip, you know, I, I've, I've probably listened to Patrick O'Brien's, each one of his novels, probably three or four times uh, through the years. Yeah. I can see if you agree with me how I, I think Lorenter is just doing a marvelous job. And um, he's published by Norton, which is a smaller independent publisher. And I'm doing my best to keep, to keep the series going because I am so enamored of it. But anyway, um, and, and there's those same questions about, you know, language choices and vocabulary choices and, you know, what, you know, my husband yeah is in a book club and he I, I saw yesterday that he wrote to say he would not be attending Sunday night and I couldn't think of why they're reading the Canterbury Tales so I said to him Rob why aren't you going and he said well he said I thought I would try to read them as close to the original as I could and he said I bought that whatever it is that there's a footnote for every yeah. <laughs> for every sentence and he said I just can't even get through the wife of Beth and I thought you know you just, I mean, it's nearly impossible to read, you know, Chaucerian English without a, a complete translation today. I mean, you just can't do it. And I thought, bless his heart. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a reader, you sometimes have to, you know, acknowledge that that maybe you need to read a more up-to-date. That's why I guess, you know, Patrick, think about the Iliad, which is having a whole renaissance because there's the new translation of it. And um who was the the Irish? Was it Beowulf? Or I'm trying to remember. What was the somebody translated one of the old yeah, books? Seamus Heaney did a translation. That's it. Right. And you know, those books almost became bestsellers because they had taken these, you know, older stories in language that most people can't read anymore and translated them to a modern idiom that tries to keep the flavor and the rhythm and all, but at least allows people to read them without out of footnote in every sentence so <laughs> anyway i really enjoyed that when he revealed that he'd bought it in the almost original english and just couldn't even get through the wife of bath bless his heart anyway um is there anything else patrick or do you need to go patrick is about to entertain an author who i think the original title for his first book is one of my all-time favorite mystery titles and it's called holmes H-O-L-E-M-E-S, Holmes on the Range. So it's basically a Western Sherlock Holmes. And I think you have to go a long way to beat Holmes on the Range as a series title. It's just so great. Yeah, that's great. And also, it's interesting because in this new book, uh, early paleontology is, is one of the topics. You know, the really? 1890s Wyoming and these scientists are out doing a dig. And of course, they find... Uh, some human remains along with the dinosaur bones, you know? Uh, so it should be fun. It should be yeah. fun. Well, Elliot, thank you for your time. Uh, Julia, thank you very much for everything you do to facilitate our working with Elliot. And um, we will, I will chase down Freedom's Choice tomorrow, Elliot, to find out where it is. It's probably going to land on your doorstep tomorrow morning. So those of you who are watching this, you need to be patient for probably about 10 days until our copies arrive from Elliot's home to the Poison Pen. Um, and those of you who belong to our historical fiction club will be getting a copy automatically. So happy holidays to everybody. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving, Elliot. 
Keep writing. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Take Good care. night, everybody. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.